Hi, it's Tuesday night. I'm on Chol Moed. I'm a little tired because I just got back from the trip to the Bible Museum. We had a, a, a nice group today. I want to give a shout out to Dr. Schechter. Doug Schechter came and joined us all the way from Long Island. Uh, and uh, it was nice meeting him. And uh, I have several podcasts I'm commissioned to do um, for different reasons, different uh, sponsors. I'm going to undertake, so I'm going to do one tonight, uh, but I can't exactly say um, exactly who it, this is for, for a certain reason, which I understand very well. I'll simply uh, thank Doc Jeff for um, sponsoring this for a uh, special milestone that's soon going to be celebrated by a special person who has to remain nameless. Um, and I'll just say one word, and those who know the person I'm talking about will understand, and those who don't, you don't need to. And that one word is class. So um, this is being done. Uh, this is this uh, podcast is being sponsored in honor of this occasion with, with a great deal of love and all that. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to go into any more than that. I think the person knows who I'm talking about, and can figure out who is the sponsors. So let's leave it at that. <coughs> um, we're looking at um, Hoshana Rabbah, so I said I would have to do two podcasts, Hoshana Rabbah, which is the strangest holiday in the Jewish calendar, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, among which is we have a tr- total unclarity of what the heck exactly happened. Just get the art, I'm serious now, get the art school Mishnah, um, Sukkah, you know, and go to those Mishnahis in the fourth pack to talk about the custom called Shana Rabbah, or not exactly what called Arava, out of which Shana Rabbah emerges, okay? And um, you'll see if you become, I'm talking about the, not the uh, art school simple one, the uh, the regular, the ideas, like the, the complicated one. I mean that in a good way where you have a lot of learning and a lot of different shittas in there, all kind of Rishonim and Achronim and this and that brought together. And uh, it can get confusing if you don't hold cup. Did they march around the altar? Did they have the Arba Minim? Did they, just, did they take the big branches? I assume everybody knows what I'm talking about. They took the big branches, hung it over the altar. Did they take the big branches themselves? Um, did they march around it or did they simply surround it so that the Kohanim could surround the side between the Ulam and the, and the Mizbeach and the Israel on the other side? Or or, or was it only Kohanim were allowed to march around it? Or was there a special pass, according to the Marischias, that, you know, the, the um, non-Kohanim can march around the Mizbeach on that day? Uh, nothing there about beating the uh, the willow branches. On the other hand, there's a mission that says they used to take, the one opinion is they used to take palm branches and beat them on the ground, which you and I don't do. Uh, you know, date palm branches. Uh, by the time it morphed into what we have today, so you know, we we, we take the uh, the willow, the the you know, the robes, and we and we do them. Um, we beat them on the ground, but that's also crazy. Like, what's going on over here? And among the wild and cra- and there are many other issues in there. Uh, the Rishonim are really all over the place in terms of offering alternative scenarios to what exactly happened on this Mitzvah Zarava. 
One uh, strange thing is this idea of marching around the altar at seven times. Um, and the thing I wanted to talk about, especially in light of the honoree of the podcast, uh, is the strange ceremony, which says that when they finished, either every day or according to Mary, when they finished the uh, Shanarabo, Bashas Petit Ross in the Mishnah says, in Perak Dalad, when they left, they said, How beautiful you are, O Mizbech. They praised the Mizbech. And some say, Or we salute Hashem and you, O Mizbech. That sounds positively pagan, as you know. And there were times in the Book of Malachim and all that where the kings worshipped altars and did crazy things like that, or at least played fast and loose with the altars. So what's Epis? In other words, this is um, a whole department of sukkahs, of ritual and law, a lot of which is supposed to be if you look at the Gemara. Connected with the special ceremony of every day or the seventh day Shanarabo, uh, which doesn't fit the usual idea of sukkahs or the carbonus associated with sukkahs or things like that. And so what's this idea of exalting the altar and singing to it. I mean, that's what they did. And, uh, you know, Yofi Lecham Mizbech, a beautiful Yom Mizbech, and things like that. Uh, I thought that we believe in Hashem, and that's it. And everything else, you know, is not praised or worshipped. Uh, but here, of course, it is, you know. So, <clears throat> what's the idea behind it? That's always a question <coughs> that strikes me if and when they ever come around on circus to think about this. Uh, and I'll tell you what suggests itself to me. I don't know if it suggests itself to you. The Mizbech is the place of a sacrifice. In Jewish thought, Mizbech represents not only a place of sacrifice, but uh, the concept of sacrifice itself, which is and and sacrifice as a medium for getting in touch with God. If you think about it, the Ovos, the people, all the rest of it, in the Bible, it doesn't talk about his bodhidas. It doesn't really talk about, you know, um, meditation, concentration, um, davening away, doing miss. It doesn't say so-and-so, daven, 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 until Hashem finally answered him, you know. I don't think it says that. Um... Instead, what you find is already Avram Yitzhak Yaakov time, even Noah. When you want to have some contact with Hashem, you do a Mizbeach thing. As a matter of fact, it doesn't necessarily even have to have an animal sacrifice on it. There are uh, certain places like, but even Shem Mizbeach, Vayikor B'Shem Hashem, I think it's about Avram, or was it Yitzhak, whatever. He built an altar and he, and he proclaimed the name of God, meaning it wasn't the act of offering animal off- sacrifices that this patriarch of ours used. It was the building of Mizbech per se. There are other occasions, of course, when Avram Yitzhak Yaakov did offer animal sacrifices. But the Mizbech isn't necessarily associated with that. And so why is it that they did that rather than, say, daven real hard, do teshuvah, be introspective, the kind of thing we do today? If you ask me, or I asked anybody, you know, how do I get in touch with Hashem? 
they say, you know, uh, reduce your favorites, build up your mitzvahs, have uh, uh, his lavas, have uh, his boninus, uh, his bodinus, you know, things like that. If you're a breastler, you just say, just start talking, you know. Uh, and who knows? But the idea of building mitzvah, especially offering things, and through that, you reach a higher level, is an interesting Jewish idea. Which, once upon a time, was decentralized when everybody had their own mitzvah. And eventually, at least according to the Torah, got highly centralized when you're only allowed to have mitzvah in the base of Middash and nowhere else. You hear what I just said? You're only allowed to have mitzvah only in the base of Middash and nowhere else. They couldn't have the bomos. And the second temple, this was honored. And so when they describe in the Mishnah the ceremonies associated with the holidays, including Sokas and including Shanarava, it's all taking place in a single location, not elsewhere. Uh, this bothered some Jews. As you know, they made an imitation temple in Egypt, the Migdash Chonyu and all that. That's true. But that was highly atypical. And therefore, you have the base of Migdash, and at the center of the base of Migdash, you have the Mizbeach right next to the Kodesh HaKadoshim, to the building of the Hechol. So what's that Mr. Mizbeach? <clears throat> and it seems to me that sacrifice of oneself, not physical, uh, you know, not human sacrifice, sacrificing of yourself is like a sacred road. Uh, it doesn't, it could be misguided into bad, you know, uh, channels, but when it's not, it's a sacred road to lead to transcendental elevation, which is quite a statement I just made. There's a famous story, I don't know, the Gemara says, you, you've heard this, that Zivig Rishon, the Mizbech cries, that if you have a couple gets divorced, and the Zivig Rishon, first marriage, the Mizbech sheds tears. Now, when I was a kid, my father, <laughs> you see, you know, they had all the Eastern European jokes, you know, my father used to say, an older couple comes, and they say, now that we married off all our children, and they should do, we're past Shadduchim, now we want to get divorced. We never liked each other. And the rabbi said, I guess, 40 years you're together, and now, you know, don't you know, Zibak Rishon, the Mizbech is crying. And, <laughs> you know, the story is that the guy said, I guess, sold the Mizbech vein and let the Mizbech cry. I've been crying for 40 years. Or she said, or he said it. But that's a bitter collector, as they say. It's a bitter joke. In reality, though, what does it mean when they say the, the, the Mizbeach cries over the breakup of a Zibig Rishon? And the meaning is pretty clear, I think. <coughs> it can't be my word alone. I'm sure not. And that is, I mean, I'm certain not, that the Mizbeach is the site of common sacrifices. So a husband and wife, let's say, for example, who are married for 40 years or whatever, have, in a typical situation, both brought sacrifices for the children, for the family. Think of all the nights you stayed up. Think of all those things you had to rush to the hospital. Think of all the, you know, the, the, the earaches, so to speak, and the, and the bad stomachs, and the croup. And that's this for starters. Think about all the trouble you had growing up with the kids growing up, you know, in elementary school and high school and this and that and the other. And, you know, sometimes he pulled his weight, sometimes she pulled her weight. They, 
raising the children or building a family. It could be, by the way, in the context of business. Let's say husband and wife. Let's say they, they you know, they, they, they had a business, like a grocery store used to be, something like that. He sacrificed a lot of time, time and effort for the business. She did. And so the family, to the degree that it was a functional family, now, if it's a dysfunctional family, or if it's really bad news, that is when gear, uh, divorce is appropriate. I'm not saying that divorce is not appropriate. Obviously, you know, you're not uh, chained in a, in a jail cell. And certainly, without question, there are certain, certain, obviously, there are circumstances when divorce is harmful and proper. But I think the Gemara is talking about a case, cases where it wasn't, you know, it didn't have to be. It's just what they chose to do, which happens fairly often also. And um, they have already put in so much time and effort in the, into the joint business. Like I said, the couple I talked about, they, they raised their children, they married them off. They did all these sorts of things. Um, now they're older, and they don't have the same cultures they had once before. What they can look back to is the common mizbeach, right? She put in her time doing all the things that a mother does, and he put in his time doing all the things that a father does, and it called for a lot of you know, you know use of time. They didn't have the free life of a bachelor and a bachelorette just to run around and go uh, party and go on trips and things like this because they had their responsibilities as as leaders of families. And now they're just all throwing it away. In other words, now they go back to, to square one. He's going to be single and she's going to be single. So the Mizbech is crying because the Mizbech is all like this. You know, I represent so much of the time and effort that you put into this. You're never going to be 20 and 25 again. You're never going to be 30 and 35 again. You know, those years behind you. So all you have, all you can do is look back and say, did I use those years wisely? Where are the pay risks from those years? Right? If you have pay risks from those years, all right. Like I say again, if you're 70 or 80, you ain't going to be you know, 20 and 30 anymore or 40. But if you have a record of achievement, if you have the pay risks, then you can say, fine, I'm not going to be 20 and 30 and 40 anymore, but I have you know, um, what to show for, for, for the time and the sacrifices I made. See what I just used? I have what to show for the sacrifices I just made. I have, you know, uh, you know, something there. As a matter of fact, on the contrary, precisely because it came through sacrifice, it wasn't a Hamidic Sufa, you know? Nobody handed it to me in a silver uh, a tray. Whatever I was able to do in terms of uh, putting together the financial situation in the family, raising the children, arranging, you know, for the uh, orderly, uh, you know, transitions in life, um, this, uh, you know, hopefully securing some kind of a financial security, all came at heavy price. It took a lot out of me, but at least I have something to show for it. So because of that, it's precious to me. You get it? It should be precious to me. So if you, like, throw it away, then the Mizbech is crying. Because, no, it's all that was, it seems to be for nothing. So, that's the meaning in that famous Agatha. But that is also the meaning, I think, let's put it this way, it's one of the meanings of the Mizbech Bechlal. As we all know, the Torah doesn't actually need you to kill animals and throw the blood around as we do and burn the fats and so forth. These are certainly halachas, no question about it, it's all kachim to it. There's no, you know, that's true. But what's the symbol of it? So the Ramban says, 
you know, that animal should be me. And when I see a chattas being killed, I realize I'm the one that should be killed and all that. Okay, you know, that could be. But I think I think differently. No, there's another way of looking at it is by offering things on an altar, I'm saying I can't get anywhere unless I offer myself on on, on, high, on the altar of higher goals. You understand? It doesn't involve me hurting myself, physically cutting myself, but it means I have to spend my life on higher goals. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, the only life worth living is a life in which your time and energy is spent in achieving something higher. Because I got news for you. Everybody dies. And so, you know, you, the, the health you have at 20, you're not going to have at this age and then, you know, and when you're 80 and 90, it's just not going to happen. So what are you going to have to show for the years when you were able to, you know, have payers, so to speak? Uh, you, you, you want something to show for that. You get it? You want something to show for that. Uh, it, it could be in a lot of different areas. But, because I'm not telling everybody, you know, what how they should live their life. But you should have something there. The person who had what Aristotle, oh, I mean, Socrates calls the unreflected life. Or a life in which he never actually did anything. Now, I'm not talking about a bad person who caused any trouble. A person lived his and her life quietly. Didn't bother anybody. You know, lived by themselves, for themselves, something like that. Uh, you know, we're okay. Did the basic things. He's even went to Shoal, you know. But, you know, there's nothing to show for it. That's a, that, that's a tragedy, you see. Now, um, by us, this is symbolized by the Mizbeach in the base of English. Because one of the interpretations, one of the classic interpretations of the Mishkan in base of English is that it's a microcosm of the human being. Uh, it has outer walls just like we have outer bodies. It also has inner stuff, like the Kodesh Kedosh and all the rest of it, which we just visited on Yom Kippur. That's your inner sanctum of your inner consciousness. Get it? Your inner heart, if you wish. That's why the Kohen Gadol goes there once a year, because most people don't visit their Kodesh Kedosh, especially if they have a virus in there, you know. Most people don't visit their Kodesh Kedosh because they don't like what it looks like. They'd rather spend all their time looking at other parts of the building. You understand? Uh, rather than look what's really going inside them. This can cause psychological problems. As a matter of fact, a professional shrink is supposed to get you um, in a therapeutic way, if, if he or she is good, to get into your Kodesh Kodashim. You know what I mean? The guy says to the doctor, to the shrink, my problem is X. And the doctor says, no, 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 your problem is Y. What do you mean Y? You know, that problem over there. See it? Oh, I didn't notice it. It was there, you just didn't notice because you didn't want to notice it. It was in your, so to speak, in your Holy of Holies. And the entire ceremony of Yom Kippur, where the Kohen Gadol walks in first with a bunch of spices and spices the whole room up, and only afterwards brings in the blood of the sin offerings, is, you know, s- symbolizing that. In other words, don't simply go and look at all your Averis, because that could be counterproductive, at least to depression. You have to go in with the sense, okay, I did these Averis, but now, but I can do better, and I can repent, and it's never too late, and I can do something about it. So that's the idea of bringing in the spices and spicing up the room, and only afterwards you bring in the blood of the Averis and all the other sorts of things. And that's pretty much the basic symbolism over there. So if, if that's that, and the Kodesh Gadosh represents your inner heart, for example, so what does Mizbech represent? Get what, see where I'm going? What does Mizbech represent? I don't mean what limb in your body. What, what does Mizbech represent? In response, it represents 
the, the, the things in life for which you sacrifice. Okay? Now, suppose a person sacrificed uh, his or her life always. Um, here, I'll give you a good example. Somebody was uh, hurt or insulted by someone. They spent the next 10 years getting revenge. So you sacrifice and move heaven and earth up and down, put in so much time and effort just to get revenge on the other person. So that's your mizbeach, you see. Uh, and we call it piggle, <laughs> you know. It's, it's a trefa uh, offering, as it were. Those you you sacrifice for a vain ideal. But if you if if on the other hand, you sacrifice for a good ideal, um, then you're offering a mizbeach. And if you sacrifice you put your time, your effort, your kishkas, and all the rest of it for the right ideal, which to us would mean to, to establish a relationship with the Rabbani Shalom, even though I hate to use that term because it sounds very cliché, but it, it, I, what can I tell you? The Jewish religion is in favor of that. Uh, then you use the Mizbeach in the right way. You offer the proper carbon, as we would say. And it's not even a question of offering a carbon. You use the concept of sacrifice to get closer to Hashem. So let's say, for example, I'm just making this up. Suppose a person said like this, you know, I'm going to, you know, cut out large blocks of my time and every day do the dafyomi, you know, in this way or that way. Um, maybe it's not a good example, but I use that. And after seven years, you finished the, you know, the whole shots and everything. And you, and you know some of it. Uh, you feel you didn't waste your time. You made a sacrifice, but you have happens to show for it. You see? There's something to show for it. Uh, that's the concept of, of Mizbech. That's the concept of Zebach. When do we have in Judaism that the Mizbech is addressed as uh, an object of the ritual instead of a um, an instrument in the ritual? Hashanah When they march around the Mizbech and they decorate the Mizbech with these funnies away with the high branches and all the rest of it, at least it seems to be that way, and they praise it and all the rest of it, then what you're doing is you're singing a song, you're singing a praise to the concept of sacrifice itself, but I would call it constructive sacrifice. You understand? In other words, sacrifice on behalf of a higher goal, which is the well-lived life. Which is the well-lived life. Uh, the farmer understands this because, you know, he puts in sweat and plow, and in the end you see literally pears coming out of the ground. Or you don't, and you don't. But when you do... Then you see all the time and effort and me getting up in the middle of the night and because it was raining, I had to go outside and, you know, uh, fix this thing and prevent a flooding in the field, all the rest of it. But at the end of the season, I saw the Paris. You understand? So, um, now let's get a little Kabbalistic. On Rosh Hashanah, Yonis Abishad says, I've said this before, it's in the Yaris Tavash, that um, Kabbalistically, Yom Kippur, uh, the uh, Shana Rabbah is supposed to be like the second Yom Kippur. That's why they have all these customs associated with it. You know, staying up all night and whatever. And the reason is because, if I understand it correctly, if you notice in the Gemara, they say that in Rosh Hashanah, you have three books. Tzadik and Bainim and the uh, and the other ones. And the uh, Rishayim. You know this Gemara, obviously. Tzadikim, Gemurim, if you're inside a gummer, then you pass your, your court case successfully in Rosh Hashanah. You don't need Yom Kippur. You do not need, because it's already you're already signed and sealed in the Book of Life. Um, I'll repeat what I just said. Signed and sealed. Sealed. In the Book of Life on Rosh Hashanah. So if anybody can have a barometer or something, and now I'm inside a gummer, I don't got to show, I don't got I don't have to go to show on Yom Kippur. 
Nobody knows that, so therefore nobody acts that way. But you know, but, but that's what it says in the Gemara. On the other hand, if you're Russia, if you're so bad, you're Russia, Gamor, then um, don't even waste your time, Yom Kippur, because you're, <laughs> you're screwed anyway. The bane in him is clean Omdin, right? Uh, the middle ones have to wait till Yom Kippur. You, you do repent on the Seresim Yitzhua. And um, I forget the experience. Let me, let me see the lesson here. Hold on. Here we are. Just open the Gemara here on Rosh Hashanah Tessayin. And Sadiqim is Nechtam Lal Al Talchaim, Rosh Hashanah Gemara Nechtam. Bainanin, Pluyin, Ba'omdim, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. They're Tali, Ba'omid, you know what that means? They're left hanging. Zachu, Nechtam, Lecham. Lo Zachu, Nechtam, Lemiso. Right? If there was Zach, if they did Shuv and all that, they're Nechtam, they're written Lechaim. But if not, then for Misa. But you know, it doesn't say Nechtamim. It just says Nechtamim. That's what they notice. See, by the other ones, it says that they're signed and sealed. But by the Bainanim, which is you and I, hope, hopefully, hopefully, now, I'm not talking about the Lubavitch pain in him, you know, which is a tzaddik. I'm talking about just you and me, which we hope. So, um, and it's a famous question. So, what about Nechtamin? So, the Mekabalim uh, say that waits for another 10 days, and then you, that, that the Nechtamin is on, on, um, on the Shanarabo. So, and Shabbat becomes a big day. Um, the idea being that once you were Nichtav Lachayim, you want to make it sealed. So think about the person I just described. Think about what I just described, because it's unique. I'll repeat it again. The Tzadik is Nichtav and Nechtam for Chaim, and the Rosh are the other way around. So it all happens at once. We don't have anybody that's called Nichtav and not Nechtam. That he's written in the Book of Life, but he's not sealed. So what what kind of a status is that? You know what I mean? Like you're in there, but it could be erased. That's what it seems to be. No, this is not a sure thing. That's a strange. And by the way, that's what they hold you and I are in now. If we're if we're banning him, we're nechtab or not nechtam. That's 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 kind of strange. You know, you are and you're not. You won the case, but you didn't because it's not totally sealed. You're not secure. So your mom is insecure. And, uh, you know, by definition, that's the Gemara talking, not me. And then you go to Yaris Tavash. So, where he describes it. And now comes the, the Shanarabba. This is the net, hopefully, 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 that's when you're sealed. Okay? Uh, and what are you doing that day that you're sealed? I pray we praise the sacrifice. You understand? As we praise the life of sacrifice that we do in terms of the mitzvahs and, and so forth. Because to be Jewish means you have to follow commandments, and that's living a life that involves sacrifice. It's a sacrifice on, on behalf of higher ideals. You can't eat what you want, you can't do what you want, you can't do this what you want, you have to do this, you have to do that. But there's a reason for it, there's a method to the matter, it's not just stom arbitrary. And the discipline that comes along with that, you're sort of acknowledging that this is Yofi Lacham is actually something beautiful. So, notice if you if you're able to maintain 
this way of behaving and you embrace the life of sacrifice and you recognize it for what it is, the only way to get ahead of anything in life, then you say, on that day when you're hopefully sealed in the book of life. Um, nobody becomes a doctor unless they're willing to make the sacrifice to go through the medical school and, and crack all those books. Nobody becomes a lawyer if you're not willing to do the law school stuff, etc., etc. Nothing happens without sacrifice. It doesn't involve killing an animal and sprinkling the blood, but it involves sacrifice. The reverse of the sacrifice, live a life of ease, life of luxury. But a life of ease and a life of luxury, Shlomo Hamel tells us, is, uh, is, is, makes you unhappy. Because 10 years go by and 20 years go by, he says in Kohelas. And then you say, you did this, you did this, you had this, you had that. But you never were called upon, you never spent your time sacrificing on behalf of a great goal. Sacrifice on behalf of a great goal. As opposed to the other person who did. So think about this. Here's Shlomo Malchus having all this stuff, whatever he wanted, literally whatever he wanted. And down the block was a little schnook who... Worked and built it, as we would say today, and built up a nice little business. You know, nothing special, but nice and prosperous. Left something to his kids. Had a he didn't have a thousand wives. He had one wife. He had a you know, let's put it this way, a successful family situation. And after forty years, Shlomo, the rich guy, is saying, "I'm not happy. I've never really been happy." And the poor guy down the block, who's made himself from the poor to the middle class, let's put it that way. And saying, I've actually had a very happy life, a successful life. Yofi l'cham is beach. The best thing that ever happened to me is because I had to work for a living. So, even though it sounds funny when I say it, but everybody, I think, will agree. <clears throat> now, we always, I don't know if you'll agree exactly, but we always say that Shlomo Melch is writing in the Kohelis, um, at least this is the way I always put it, what do you do if you win the jackpot? I looked online, I see it's 1.2 billion. It means you walk away with 500 and some million. If I walked away at 500 and some million, you would never have to work again. Then the challenge would be, what do you do with the rest of your life? What do you do with the rest of your life? Now, I want the 500 million for the financial security. That's a different vart. But you don't want the 500 million if it prevents you from, do, from, from, from you know, doing something or becoming something or building something up or whatever. The person who built up the practice the person who built up the business, the person who built up his learning, became a great Talmud Chacham through Yigiyah, through Yigiyah, that's the Yofi Lohamizbeach. So it turns out, I went a little bit too long here, it turns out that Hashanah Rabbah, which again is the final Yom Kippur, right? Hashanah Rabbah is a day of tremendous philosophical introspection. You're praising physically the altar with branches and marches and all that sort of thing. And Tekiyas and Truas and Tekiyas. Yes, that is all true. But what you're saying is, at least according to one opinion in the, in the Mishnah, what you're saying is that the uh, best thing that ever happened to us was we lived a life of sacrifice. Right? Of personal sacrifice. Everything I just said fits the person whose honor this is being uh, uh, sponsored. And again, I want to f- uh, thank uh, Dr. J. And... Um, I'm going to endeavor to close this down now, not to give away the store. With that, I wish everybody a good morning.